You're listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. I'm Gandalf. I'm Matt. And I'm Nathan Van Horn. The Bible is the most read book ever, but for many, it is merely fiction. Join our conversation as we connect the dots to reveal that the story of the Bible is not only true, it's better than fiction. To learn more about the show, visit us online at betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com. Well, hello again, guys. Hey, man. Hey, everybody. Nathan, you didn't greet me with shalom like you normally do, and that, oh, that, that disappoints that, me. That completely threw you off. I'm so sorry. I will formally adopt that as my way of saying hello and goodbye. So shalom, y'all. Well, you know, I feel like it's your it's your catchphrase. It's the way you open and close every podcast, which, just like you do, I'm going to segue directly into our main thought for this episode, which is that the way that Genesis is written has a particular style that communicates a specific message. Did, did I do good, Nathan? Did I do a good job? Yeah, at and, and the, the other connection that Genesis 1 focuses so much on how re- God reveals about himself through the act of speaking. So last episode, when we were talking about specifically Genesis 1-1, we primarily talked about what Genesis 1-1 is not. It's not commentary on modern objections to the beginning of the universe or whether or not there's a God. It is. It is a word that we talked about. It is a polemic. It is pushing back against another worldview. It's just not the modern worldview. So we want to talk today about what it is pushing back on and the claim that it is making. So what it is pushing back on are the surrounding cultures that have their ideas on how the world came into be. So I've got a question for you, Nathan. To whom was Genesis 1 written, and what is Genesis chapter 1? What is the writer of Genesis trying to accomplish here? Yeah, Matt, it's like something uh, I've heard said, and I know you like this phrase. The, the entire Bible is written for us, but it was not initially written to us. So is it fair to say that when we're reading the Bible, we're reading someone else's mail? To, to some extent, but we're not reading the mail of a stranger. We're reading the mail of an ancestor. We have a spiritual kinship. You know, we exist in continuity right. with these people. Uh, I like to think of, rather than just reading through the mail of a complete stranger, I like the illustration of, you know, all these people who go to Ellis Island in New York to find the names of their ancestors in these books. These were people who were charting a new identity in America. And you have, you know, people, a couple of, generations or maybe even centuries removed who, who, who just think, man, we're in continuity with these people. I wish they could see where we are now, how far this story has come. And that's kind of what we have with the Bible. Uh, on the one hand, we have an extreme advantage over so many who have come before us in the faith, these Old Testament figures, because they could not understand as fully as we do in light of Christ where the story was going, even though there were you know, signposts and hints and, and foreshadowing all throughout. But uh, on the other hand, we can't really appreciate how far the story has come unless we get in touch uh, with the context of our spiritual ancestors, right? Unless unless we read these texts as best we can through their eyes. And Matt, like you said, in, the, in their context, 
the creation story was not in a vacuum. You had multiple creation stories in the ancient world, but Genesis 1 stands not only alongside them, but polemically over against them and insisting this is not many gods, this is one God. This is not an accident. This is something that the one God does on purpose. And just at the most basic level, the most traditional reading of, of Genesis through Deuteronomy would, would attribute authorship uh, to someone you mentioned several times in the last episode, Moses. Moses is leading the people out of Egypt sometime between the 15th and the 13th century uh, BC. That's a debated point. But look at the context. They've been in Egypt for generations. They've seen the Egyptian Egyptians worshiping multiple deities. One of the prominent deities was the sun god Ra. How does that affect the way that you're hearing Genesis 1, but when you read about one God creating and the sun doesn't come along till day four, the same God that just set you free from the Egyptians is is also sovereign over the things that the Egyptians worship, even as the ultimate gods. All right. So I know how big a deal that that Ra, the sun God was to the Egyptians, because as a child, I watched the Prince of Egypt by DreamWorks growing up. Great flick. And I still maintain that that is the best biblical movie ever produced ironically by a secular company but my new favorite word is polemic that you guys keep using over again it's a a word that it doesn't come up in gamer circles a lot you know since last episode i've been using ontology in conversation as often as i can (laughs) and so you guys are saying what i'm hearing is that this is written as a pushback or as a reaction against the other competing ideas about the genesis of creation so my question is that how i believe you guys but how do we know that's true because i as far as i know that's not directly in genesis one well maybe it is and you're just not taught or have not been taught to see it and so and this is not to try to say hey i'm so much smarter it's just it's something i had to be taught to see you you don't have to say we all we all know it it's all right. <laughs> no, I, I don't mean it like that. But I, I'm just saying is that it's not abundantly obvious in the English. In fact, Nathan, why don't you help us with Genesis 1-2? I'm going to read Genesis 1-2 to us, and then Nathan can help us with a little bit of the Hebrew to understand where we're coming from here about it being a polemic. So Genesis 1-2 is, The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. Last week, we talked Genesis 1-1, summary statement. All right, now Genesis 1-2. Now we're getting into the meat of the pushback, the meat of the polemic. Nathan, help us see it. Yeah, so you get it right there in verse 2. Why do you start with these watery depths? To us, that doesn't stand out. This idea of formlessness and emptiness and this even the sense of chaos, perhaps. But for every other creation account in antiquity, that was the starting place. In fact, one of the most common narratives that would have been most familiar to the biblical authors is the idea that creation emerged uh, from this chaotic cosmic conflict between a large saltwater source and a large freshwater source, Apsu and Tiamut. And when they came crashing into each other, creation 
situation just kind of resulted in the aftermath. Look at how differently and how directly Genesis is engaging that. It's saying that creation did not result from this chaotic cosmic conflict because even when you had the the surface, literally in Hebrew, the faces of the watery depths, perhaps personifying that common narrative, the Spirit of God was always hovering over the waters. It was never chaotic cosmic conflict. It was always the singular purposeful God that the creation you see all came from the God that you don't. And now just, this is jumping way ahead in the story, but I just want to go ahead and put in a little plug here. God's sovereign rule over the chaotic waters is a theme that will reoccur throughout the rest of the Bible. You hit it really big in the Exodus for obvious reasons when it comes to the Red Sea or Sea of Reeds. You also, I can think of the most famous New Testament example, is when Jesus is walking on the chaotic waters of the storm, and he's literally standing on them, hovering over them, and his disciples thought he was a ghost. He thought he was a spirit, and he is ruling over them, and then he gets in the boat, and the, the storm is calmed. This becomes this becomes an image of God's rule over chaos throughout the rest of the Bible. And it's even interesting in what follows, you know, the first constructive verse of the creation account, then God said, let there be light. Over against, you know, chaos and conflict, God speaks clarity and he does, he creates something that reveals and that better helps understand. You know, he, he creates something that literally shines a light on everything that follows. And so one thing that you'll see as creation develops, you know, we've gone from talking about what Genesis 1 is not to what it is. Pay attention to the careful role of number one, what God says or how God speaks, and then what or how God sees. There is an enormous role starting in Genesis 1 and throughout the Bible on the role of speaking and seeing as they're just integral to the story and they're integral to the character of who God is. This is completely different. The ancient controversy versus the modern controversy, because in the modern time we think of the, the two conflicting ideas are supernatural versus the completely natural. And then you're saying here it's chaos versus order in terms of a chaotic creation versus an ordered creation. In both conversations, modern and ancient, part of the discussion is purpose and order, right? So in, in a modern discussion, if you're reading Genesis over against you know a, a very materialistic account of the universe, then you have to account for how did a, a cosmic accident uh, result in a, in a very well-ordered, finely-tuned creation. In the ancient world, you have to account for whether it's one God versus many gods, and you're tying the created order as we have it to the character of this one God you're saying made it all. One of the things that I want to mention here to further tap into this whole idea of a polemic. So if you're reading this as an ancient Israelite, you're thinking about, yes, our God, Yahweh, created all of these things. However, if you're reading this as an ancient Canaanite or an ancient Egyptian... How you, dare they? <laughs> when you start talking about the sun, the moon, when you start talking about the, the water, you're all of the sudden talking, these are personified gods. You're talking about their gods here. And I think it's one of the things that is, this is something that I haven't 
understood until the last few years of study, is that ancients did not think the sun itself was a god, but rather that the sun symbolized who their it god was. Who it, was a manif- yeah, it was a manifestation. Yeah, it was a manifestation. Or... And so, when we, as moderns, I think this is one of the biggest misunderstandings we have of the of the ancient world. It's not that they were worshiping the mountain or worshiping the moon, like the actual literal astronomical object, but but rather that personified or was a manifestation of who their god, who their god is. So, to an ancient reader in a different culture. When you're saying God has made all this stuff, they're saying, oh, this is an attack on our pantheon. They, they, they well, get it. Well, you're right about it being a big misunderstanding because I did not realize that until this very moment. I, I thought they legitimately worshipped the, the, the physical mountain and the sun. Which, well, by, it, the, by, by the way, it's no accident because of what Matt said. What's the number one, you know, we haven't gotten into sin uh, or sin language yet, but what's the number one sin that comes up again and again in the Bible. It's the most uh, common sin referenced in the Bible. It's the sin of idolatry. And it's it's because within their default cultural setting, there were literally gods everywhere. Right. And, but to tap into that, to make sure we understand, because for, I'm telling you for years, I did not get this. I thought that when we read about the ancients bowing down to idols or bowing down to the, I mean, there are idols everywhere. Yeah. Idols everywhere, not gods. Yeah. When we read about, them bowing down to statues and idols. We read about them bowing down to the elements of creation. I thought they were actually worshiping those things as if the idol itself was a deity. But no, the idol was just meant to be. They didn't. No ancient would have thought that the idol was the actual god. Rather, the idol was was meant to be awakened by the god coming and inhabiting the idol itself. That's, that was it, it, that it bore the image of the God. Exactly. So when you're reading Genesis 1 and you're reading about all of these things, other peoples are thinking, oh, this, they're talking about our gods, man. So it is an ancient polemic. And that's just something that's lost to us as modern readers. Does, are, you, are you tracking with me, Gandalf? I, I am. That makes, now that I think about it, that makes, makes way more sense because the way I was thinking about it, it was like ancients are just stupid, right? Like, ah, uh-huh, you think that that rock is literally a god, but that doesn't make any sense. Ah, uh, yes. And as we always underestimate the ancients, always. They, I'm just, they weren't that stupid. Yeah, so with, with that in mind, that framework in mind, let's get into what Genesis 1 is actually doing. And to me, uh, there are a couple of words that really group what we find uh, and really account for for what we see in Genesis one. One of them that we've already come to is is purposeful. Here is a God, again one God who does not become any more God than he ever was, is, or will be by virtue of creating, but by but because he's God, he likes to make things. This is a God who delights in creating. Uh, so number one, creation, as we find it in Genesis 1, is not an accident. It is purposeful. And again, that challenges both modern and ancient narratives. Number two, and this is a big point about Genesis 1, the creation that we find is not 
chaotic cosmic conflict. It's very orderly. The days uh, go together, not only within each day, but among the days. So day one, God creates light and distinguishes it from darkness. You have night and day. Uh, You know, the next day, uh, there's a separation of the waters, sky and sea. Day three, dry ground and plants. Day four, sun, moon, and stars, which happen to correspond, these heavenly luminaries, with the light and darkness from day one. Day five, you know, birds of the sky and fish of the sea, which correspond with day two, you know, sky and sea. Day six, land animals, which correspond with day three, and ultimately the creation of mankind in God's image. And Matt, we've talked about this. Even more couplings and pairings have been suggested uh, in the created order. Yeah, I think actually the, the way it is written because we're not reading a biography of creation. It's ordered in a specific way. Now, by the way, I think it's all true. I'm not questioning the trueness of Genesis 1, but it's ordered in such a way for us to have something about this God of order communicated to us. So, Nathan, I know in previous conversations we've had, you talk about the pattern of pairs. You just mentioned a few of them there, how days 1, 2, and 3 are paired with four, five, and six, I think it actually goes back to Genesis 1-2, which is that the earth was without form and void. There's another, there's the first pair. So the earth did not have any form and it was empty. And if you think about the pairs of days 1, 2, and 3, and 4, 5, and 6, 1, 2, and 3, light and dark, sky and sea, dry land and plants, those are addressing the form where four, five, and six are addressing the, the void or the emptiness. So he addresses the form with day one, two, and three, and then he fills the void in days four, five, and six. And ultimately, it's going to culminate in another pair, which is male, male and, and female. female. And, and then also th- there's one other pair that we didn't mention that's that's found in there, evening and morning, evening and morning. So there is this pattern of pairs that runs through Genesis 1, and the author, he's wanting us to pick up on this. Why is the pattern of pairs there? And I, I think it communicates several things about the creation story. So just, just to ask, the patterns that are found in the creation story— and the creation itself, I know they're communicating something. Nathan, Gandalf, either of y'all, what do you think they're communicating? Uh, Well, to me, and and especially the way that you tied the pairs, not just back to uh, filling out the form and filling out the void, you know, addressing form and function, but the way that you tied them forward to the way this culminates in in male and female, outside of the male-female pairing, no part of that in isolation can create further life, right? Uh, and so you see something about God and that he not only creates life, he creates life that in turn creates more life, whether it's plants that you know produce seed after their own kind, male and female, uh, or beasts of the field producing offspring, or ecosystems, habitats that provide the environmental conditions to sustain and support the continuance of life, right? And again, read that over against verse 2. Yeah, here here is the the polemic. If creation is an accident resulting from cosmic conflict, then there is no intrinsic purpose beyond 
uh, inherent strife, malice, and competition for survival. If, if creation is this purposeful, orderly act that not only creates life, but creates life that is itself capable of creating more life, that is so, the word that comes to my mind is personal or perhaps intimate. Uh, this is a God who creates life that creates life. In fact, one of the points that we'll make in next episode when we look at Genesis 2, in the Genesis 2 creation account, it's not God who is the last person who speaks. It's Adam, right? Mm-hmm. God creates life that creates life. In Genesis 2, this God who has spoken things into existence will allow Adam to speak binding names, designations over the various facets of his creation. He involves man intimately, personally in that process. So for me, when I'm reading the creation accounts, that's that's a major concept and a major word that stands out for me. It's either personal or, or just very intimate. It's very relational. There it is. Yeah. So Gandalf, I know you're a fan of Star Wars. Oh, yes. So when in Star Wars, it's it's the force is impersonal. It's just, it's just a thing, right? That's right. And the the force doesn't have an agenda beyond the generic propagation of life, or 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 the neutral, the seemingly neutral concept of balance, right? Which, That's, by the way, there's some major tie-ins there with absolutely Buddhism and Eastern religions. It's it's interesting how many tie-ins there are there, but. Well, we don't see an impersonal force here. Rather, we see a relational God that creates through speaking. Speaking presumes on a mind at work. And if it's a mind, that means he's a person. And that means he can know others and be known. So as he has created the creation, and as it is relational to all the other parts of creation, it's also meant to be this, we talked about chains last time, this chain that links you back to a relationship with a personal God. I think this is one of the things that Paul talks about the misuse in Romans 1, when he says, hey, listen, when you look at creation, the things about God can be clearly known by just looking at creation, because the way creation relates to each other and relates to itself tells us something about God, that he's there, and that he wants relationship with the rest of his creation. Yeah, it's kind of hard to have a, it's kind of hard to have a relationship with two bodies of water slamming into each other. <laughs> By the way, if you've ever been caught in a riptide, you know that that struggle is real. Um, I actually want to piggyback on something Matt said and, and kind of just tie this all together. Matt, you referenced uh, Romans 1, 19 following, and I think it merits reading those verses. It says, since what can be known about God is evident, literally manifest, visible among them because he has manifest, shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, that is, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, being understood through what he has made. To me, these verses bring together so much of what we've been discussing uh, in previous episodes and today. I know it feels like we're really taking our time in Genesis 1, but this is the launch pad for the entire story. We've got to get this right. Uh, We've talked a lot in this episode about the importance of God speaking in 
and creating through speaking and, and establishing himself as this relational God. But at the beginning, we also mentioned the importance of how God sees things, the importance of sight. Uh, we've also talked about the invisible uh, being behind the visible, that what we see um, comes from a God that we cannot see, but what we see tells us about uh, that God. And that's so interesting to me because the word that keeps coming up in Genesis 1 is good. After God creates each facet of this creation, he not only speaks it into being, he assesses it and he sees that it's good, 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 good. And then in Genesis 1.31, it says that God sees everything that he has made and behold, it's very good, exceedingly good. In Hebrew, that's tov mioth. Uh, good is tov, and, and mioth uh, is very or exceedingly or excessively good. Um, and I, I've made the joke before, you can't really understand that uh, tov mioth unless you're from Louisiana, because in Louisiana, there's a word that captures it perfectly, and it's the word lanyap. If you go into a restaurant in Louisiana and you order a dish, you can count on it. It's going to be good. To me, that's the best food in the world. I'm, you know, I'm partial. Um, but uh, uh, if the chef gives you exactly what you order, it's going to be good. But if the chef's in a particularly good mood, if he's in a very good mood, he's going to put something extra on that plate that you didn't order. It's going to be called lanyap. Uh, it's even more than you ordered, and it makes the dish greater than the sum of its parts. Uh, and that's how Genesis 1 all comes together, uh, that creation is greater than the sum of its parts, um, and that the God you can't see uh, so much can be known about him and so much can be anticipated about the story he's going to tell in creation through what he has made and how he has made it. Uh, to me, that's what brings all of this together. Uh, and I love that. Um, because, you know, we've talked about the way that Genesis interacts with stories, ancient and modern. In the ancient world, it's like we just said, uh, it's, the, it's this cosmic clashing of the waters. And if you're caught in a riptide, you can't see anything. In the modern world, we've kind of, uh, you know, in, in, in a, a post-religious, post-Christian society, many people have abandoned this creation narrative uh, for what they can view through a telescope or under a microscope. Uh, and in response to that, Genesis is a really clear pair of glasses. It's saying, here's a good look at God through what God has made. Uh, yes, there's so much that you can uh, see about creation by zooming in. Yes, there's so much you can see about the broader created order by zooming out through a telescope. But if you want to see creation clearly, and if you want to see the God behind it clearly, Genesis 1, I think, serves as a really good pair of glasses uh, to a God who is very good through this very good world that he has made. In fact, we see this specifically in Genesis 1.26, when God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. It's interesting. It's the only part of the creation that there is an announcement before the creation. God announces it first, and then he does it. Now, there's a question of who is he announcing it to. I personally think that he is announcing it to the heavenly host, there are others that say God's announcing it to the Trinity, and I don't think that's what's happening there because the Trinity was not something that was revealed until much later in the Bible. But regardless, he is announcing, he is celebrating what he is doing. And the let us language shows us this, 
that there is not just a love of creation, but a love of celebrating his creation. And I, I think that is paramount to this story. All right, guys, all this talk of Cajun food and land yap has made me hungry. So just like last time, I'm going to go ahead and end this episode and reiterate what I think are the main takeaways from this conversation. And you guys tell me if I'm on track. Number one, Genesis as a creation account is a polemic. In other words, it's pushing back against the ideas and mythologies of the surrounding cultures. It's throwing major shade at the gods of Egypt and showing everyone and others who's really in control. Number two is that creation is ordered with patterns and specifically with pairs that tell us about the nature of creation. And number three, creation itself is what tells us about the character and the person of God. It tells us that he is relational, that he's intimate, and that he has a desire to be in celebration with his creation. Man, I think that's good. Well summed up. You got it. Yeah, Gandalf, not only did you capture that perfectly, but I think you also convinced me to go get something to eat myself. So this has been great. We'll see you next time. All right. See ya. Shalom. Shalom. You've been listening to the Better Than Fiction Bible Podcast. If you like what you've just heard and want to support the show, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a positive review on whatever platform you're listening. If you have questions or want to contact us, you can visit our website at www.betterthanfictionbiblepodcast.com.